welcome to the God Reports podcast. I'm your host, Rebecca. And I'm Sam. We love stories that describe the powerful ways God is at work. As a little girl, I would listen to old stories of missionaries on cassette tapes. I could still recite every single word to you. When my father-in-law gave us access to the God Report's massive collection of raw telephone interviews, it really felt like discovering a hidden treasure. Yeah, every Friday I would get together with my dad, who is Mark Ellis, the writer for God Reports. Over a cup of coffee, an omelet, and some bacon, he would tell me about interviews with people from all over the world. I loved listening to my dad retell these stories about Jesus showing up in people's lives. They not only challenged me to trust him, but to also follow his lead in my life. We are so excited to share our discoveries. Our faith has been encouraged and we know yours will be too. Today's interview is with Basil Baz, the founder of the Association for the Recovery of Children. Under his mother and grandmother's influence, Baz became a Christian as a young boy. Mom shared the word of God every night and prayed with us, he recalls. She lived out her faith. After high school, he attended the Citadel, a military college in South Carolina, where he got involved with the Navigators and Fellowship of Christian Athletes. He said, the Citadel forced me to depend on God with everything I had and I grew closer. In his years with the Marines and CIA, he had several narrow escapes from death. On multiple occasions, I should have been dead, he said. Due to last minute changes, he missed a plane or jeep that subsequently fell into harm's way. He concluded, I saw the hand of God and that he had a purpose for me. Now God is using his extensive training for another purpose, recovering missing and exploited children. Here is the extraordinary interview from 2012. You know, our, our family, uh, I come from a, a, a pretty historical, biblical family. Um, my grandfather came here as an immigrant in 1914, and uh, he's actually uh, Druze or Lebanese, but the name Baz, B-A-Z, as you know, dates uh, all the way back to Noah's time. Yeah. And um, and so, uh, you know, growing up under hearing about our ties to King Solomon's people and all of that, um, you know, it was it's very interesting growing up that way as a kid, but more interesting than that is the fact that my grandmother, who was Native American uh, of sorts out of the Waccamaw tribe, um, became a believer who, through initially through the Catholic Church, but then left the Catholic Church and became uh, Pentecostal. Hmm. And I think she did that only because uh, she just got to a place in a personal conviction where she realized that she didn't need a middleman to go between her and God and saw something there where um, she... She developed a really solid personal relationship. I come from a family that believes that if it's written in, the, in God's word and handed down through history, that if God spoke to Moses, that he can still speak to people. Mm-hmm. He's still the same God today that he ever was. And in my personal life as a young kid, at a really early age of about four or five, um, God was speaking to me. I mean, audibly. You know, I would be in the backyard in a tree and I'd be just carrying on a conversation with God and 
My dad wasn't a believer at that time. Uh, even though he had grown up with his mother being a believer, I think that he was, you know, on the fringes of it. Because my grandfather, actually, when he came here, he was of Muslim faith. Huh. Uh, coming from Lebanon. And, um, or somewhere right in between there, because the Druze have kind of a really kind of quirky kind of religion. You know, it's like, you can't really say it's half Christianity, half Muslim. I just think it more leans toward Islam than anything else. But, um, and a lot of that had to do with the, the Ottoman Empire invading Lebanon and a bunch of other stuff. But at my early age, those were the voice, that was the voice that I was hearing. And I can remember walking out of my backyard one day and my dad specifically looking at me when I was very young and asked me who I was talking to. Mm. And I just said, God. Huh. And... Um, and it's interesting in that even though my mother, who was a very strong believer, shared the word of God with us every night, she would pray with us and, you know, read us Bible stories and she lived her faith. Um, you know, my dad even said, well, did God talk back to you? And I remember saying, well, of course, why would I talk to somebody that didn't talk back to me? And so there was a, something that I, I was blessed with which was a knowing that you know, and and it was a biblical proportion to the point that you can never you can never go back. You can never turn your turn and try to go the other way once you know. And um, I saw up I grew up, in, you know, going to church. Where was yeah. this? Uh, well, all over South Carolina, Georgia. Massachusetts. I mean, we were a military family. My dad was Green Beret. Wow. And, um, and, uh, and the rest of the family, you know, they were a, a really faith-based family. But I learned something interesting about faith and about the Word of God and about God himself and the personality of God early on because it was interesting is even though my grandfather at that time did not claim to be a Christian early in the years, and in fact he despised a lot of you know, um, tent preachers because he just couldn't figure out why here they would roll into town in the old south. People would give them their money and tithes and offerings. They'd be driving around in a Cadillac in a new suit and everybody else was poor. Mm. Mm. And so when I used to listen to him, I understood in a really interesting way what he was getting at. And what he was saying, whether he knew it or not, was the same thing that Christ had been saying to the Pharisees and the Sadducees, you know, um, mm. about, po you know, posturing yourself and, and, and for show and just a lot of other stuff. So I kind of grew up under a real practical sense of faith in that if God could do it in the Bible, if he was going to speak to Moses, then I was going to go, God, well, then you need to speak to me. If you're going to raise people from the dead, and you're telling me that I can raise people from the dead, then I'm going to find a way to make sure I'm walking close enough to you that that happens. Mm. And, um, and so I grew up uh, in a very loving, very uh, live, live your life as a Christian more than preaching it. And we as a military family went from church to church to church. And, um, and then somewhere in my life during my high school years, things started to change and I had some interesting miracles happen that just, once again, just kind of solidified uh, the love of God in my life. And one of those 
those was um, my mother being healed mm. and God using me as a an instrument for that. Mm. Still to this day wondering how in the world it all happened and why it happened. Um, what was her disease? You know, I don't, I, I don't know what her disease was. I just know she was really ill and she had gone to the doctors and something was going on in our house and she wasn't getting better. Mm-hmm. I remember being up in the bedroom praying with her and being so angry at God that I literally screamed at God. You know, like, what has my mom done to you? Why, why won't you heal her if you're the God of Abraham? You know, why won't you do this? And I remember my mom kind of asking me not to do that. And, um, and I can remember uh, just praying and fasting for a couple of days and, uh, like, weeks after that. And I remember God telling me, to go to the church. It was on a. It was on like a Tuesday, and our church that I was attending at that time was, uh, I think it was kind of a non-denominational, kind of like a four-square church, like Rolling Hills, kind of like. Mm-hmm. And it was pastored by a guy named Edgar Bethany, this really teeny little Irish guy, about no bigger than a leprechaun, honestly. But he walked with God, and he was almost so heavenly minded to the point that you would think he was no earthly good even his own grandsons would be scared to drive with him because he'd be like talking to God constantly while he was driving and and they used to kind of say it used to scare him but so God told me to go to the church now and I'm thinking but but the church isn't open and I remember getting on my little motorcycle I was like I was 16 years old and I drove up there, and Edgar Bethany was coming out of the church. He opened the door, and he looked at me, and he said, I left it open for you. Just lock it when you leave. Wow. <laughs> and this was a church that was kind of a kind of a round church, Mark, and kind of went down kind of towards the altar. And I remember going in there, and I remember falling on my face, I was brokenhearted, and I remember praying for like, I mean, just pouring my heart out before God. And I remember really interesting things happened. The presence of God was so incredibly thick. Mm. I could not even, I could not even raise my head. I mean, I was just bowed down, and interesting things started happening, like the door on the right by the altar just opened. Hmm. And that, you know, can put some fear in you right there. But it wasn't that scary, spooky fear. It was literally omnipotence. And I remember just crying out and literally crawling out of there backwards with my face down. For I was so afraid that if I looked up, I would see the face of God or something. And who knows what would happen. I just, it was... I've never had that happen in my life ever since that. Hmm. I went back. I got out of the church. Didn't even look back down at the altar. I mean, to this day, in my heart of hearts, I know God was standing there, and he probably had a ton of angels with him. Because the evidence soon came after that. I drove home. My mom, was, who had been in bed ill, was waiting in the den for me. As if she knew I was coming back. 
she looked at me and she said, it's time for you to pray for me. Hmm. And I remember in my head, I had this like big old prayer I was going to say. I mean, I kind of, I could see it, you know, I was formulating it in my head. You know, I'm going to pray a prayer. And I stuck my hand out and I touched her head. And the only, when I opened my mouth to say this big prayer, the only thing that came out of my mouth was, in the name of Jesus Christ, be healed. And it was like a lightning bolt went through my head, out my arm, sucked all my energy out, threw her back in the chair, and she was out cold. Gee, wow. What a And dramatic. I was standing there, totally drained, totally mystified, totally in awe. I remember turning to the fireplace, and I just, I just looked at God, and I said, I don't know what just happened. I don't know what's going on, Father. And I went upstairs, and then I went to sleep. Hmm. All I know from that experience is that my mom went to the hospital about two days later, and she came back. She didn't have whatever she had had. Hmm. You know. Praise God! What a what a remarkable story. Well, give me tell me first of all how you got into this. Um. In 1991, uh, I was uh, in Somalia um, running operations there, and um, I was with a team. There were, the CIA had sent a couple of teams in early uh, before anybody else had gotten in there um, during the Civil War. Uh, and we were driving past a French Foreign Legion uh, defense post, and we noticed two little girls hiding underneath some debris. And it was interesting because they kind of looked half-breed. Um, their skin was just a little fairer than everybody else. Their hair didn't look uh, like that of a normal Somali kid. They were wearing blue jeans and T-shirts. Hmm. And um, so um, we went back to our safe house, and it just... It, I just wrestled with it all night long. It's like, you know, I know this isn't part of our mission, um, but these little girls, uh, you know, what are they doing out there? So I talked to a couple of uh, the guys that were on my team, and they were great guys, great, uh, really amazing, amazing guys. And I said, uh, we got to go back and get those girls. Hmm. And they said, yeah, we do, but... We can't bring them here to the safe house. And so I just got up on the roof and I just prayed that night. And I said, God, what do you want to do with, with these kids? And um, about a couple hours later, one of my guys came up and he said he had had an agent meeting or something. And he said, you know what? He goes, this is the strangest thing. He goes, you're not going to believe this. He goes, there's this African-American lady from, from the United States, and she's opening an orphanage here in Mogadishu for her church. <laughs> <laughs> and God said, well, that's where you're going to take them. That's the answer. So the next day we did, we went and picked them up. We took them to the orphanage, and uh, and um, and then the, they translated uh, for us. Um, and the little girl said, "Hey, my mother and um, and our little brother is still out there." And so um, so we decided to hop in our stuff and.
skirt through the ambushes or whatever was going to come our way that day and um, go find her mother. And by the grace of God, we found, believe it or not, we found her mother and her little brother, too. It mm. uh, comes to uh, find out they, they were the children, I believe this was the story, they were the children of an American engineer that had, uh, of sorts, that had abandoned them. And I suspect that he was a gentleman who had a family in the United States and mm. had a family there as well. Oh, my. And, uh, and so after I did that, I came back, and, um, and of course, Mogadishu con continued to go upside down. Unfortunately, we had the, the horrors of Black Hawk Down and other yeah. stuff. And yeah. We lost a lot of lives there, and it just wasn't a great place. Um, and it, even not even a greater place for a bunch of kids or an orphanage or whoever that lady was. And, and uh, I always keep her in my prayers. Maybe God will I'll bump into her again one day. Mm -hmm. um, anyway, came back and just said, you know, <clears throat> I think there's something a little bit bigger than overthrowing small governments. And I said that jokingly because that's not necessarily what the, the CIA did. You know, they were just supporting U.S. policy. Mm-hmm. You know, that's what everybody thinks they do. And <laughs> so it became a funny thing for me to say. But after that, um, I realized that, I took a look and I realized that that talent time back in the 90s, there were close to, I don't know, close to 400,000 children missing from the United States. And I kept asking friends in law enforcement and other people. 400,000? Yeah, when this year alone, Mark, this year alone, we had 800,000 missing. No. Yeah, 800,000. In the U.S. or worldwide? No, that's just the United States. Huh. Yeah. So I kept looking and I said, you know, these are the future of our country. And if we allow children to grow up in dysfunctional settings, they're going to grow up, we're going to have dysfunctional society. And I said, and in addition to that, these are children. And they're helpless, and someone has got to step up to the plate and do it, and do it because it's the right thing to do. And so and I looked at how the hands of most law enforcement were tied, whether it's jurisdictionally or whether it was funding or whatever, what it was. And I got kind of disgusted at the fact that in, at our highest levels of government, we're putting more interest in so many other things rather than the 400 thousand children that were missing yeah and, you know and and it just didn't make any sense to me and they were going all kinds of places you know they were being human human trafficking prostitution runaways um abductions non-custodial parental abductions satanic cults i mean the list goes on i mean <clears throat> and what i've learned over my years is that spiritually there is an evil force out there that just wants to kill, just basically kill God's great creation when it comes to kids because kids are innocent and they are just an open source for God to reach. Their hearts are just so open and, 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 and they're just, they're innocent and so they're being attacked because look, if you can kill off all the kids, if you can destroy their souls, guess what? You've destroyed the souls of people who become adults. Yeah. Anyway, so what happened was I got back and um, I formed the Association for the Recovery of Children, which is the, a nonprofit 501c3. Mm -hmm. And 
because I am not a great administrator, because I am was at that time a one-man team taking his leave days and not telling people where I was going and just going after and bringing kids home. And many of those early on were very um, rough cases, you know, like dealing with uh, bad guys like the cartel or, you know, who would steal kids or whatever it may be or going into mm. places. Um, just, it's just ugly stuff. So would that be, dealing with the cartel, would that be like Mexico or, or here? Uh, no, that's, that would, well, it was Mexico, South America, other places. Mm -hmm. so, um, so anyway, um, I just made a decision and I talked to God about it and God just directed me. He said, look, this won't be a business. This is a mission. And you're not going to charge any parents. If you go after a parent's child, you'll never charge them. Hmm. And so it was a deal that God and I made. And so um, I just told God, I said, well, how do you want me to do this? <laughs> and so I just, God, you know, I, I have a good, strong heart. I can work. And so I would work and I would do whatever business I could, whether it was consulting or whether I did something in film and television or whether it's something I did with DOD or whatever. And the money that I would make, um, I would do a couple of things, just pay my bills, and the rest of what I would put into my nonprofit, and that's what I would go run operations off of. Oh, great. We would get donations, but we didn't get a lot of them. I mean, I'm not like the National Center for Missing Exploited Children where we get $40 million a year from the government because I don't want the government telling me who I can go get and who I can't go get. Um, is that a real problem? I mean, is that really a... Yeah, yeah it is a real problem. Um, Department of State, I have great friends in the Department of State, and I have great enemies in the Department of State. Mm. More times than not, uh, certain members of the Department of State have tried to throw us under the bus because when you go into a country to get an American, as we see it, it's an American being held hostage. As they see it, they have political and economic agendas in that country. And a child, so far, it has been my experience based on the people that I have dealt with there that the child is a low priority. Yeah. And, I, I, and it's sad to say that's just been my experience. Now, I've had other experiences with some people in the Department of State, which has just been amazing. But they have been individuals, and when they did offer their help, they had to tiptoe around a lot of things because they just didn't want to, you know, stir up the pot. So it makes me look at our bureaucracy and say, what are we doing? What yeah. are the priorities? Yeah. Where's the importance of human life here? Um, instead of the greed for money and other things, you know. So, um, so as it stands now, um, that's what I do. And um, we do run out of money, and when we run out of money, I start saving it up again and little donations come in here and there and um, and then we go and we run operations and we bring a kid home. Yeah. And everybody does it. Um, they volunteer. They're special operations guys. Um, they work jobs other places and the downside of this is for some reason when you tell people this everybody thinks that I must be like a philanthropist or something. Um, but I will tell you, it comes at great sacrifice. It comes at sacrifice for times you want to go home and live your normal life, like go to, you know, have a vacation or go visit your folks or, or pay your bills or whatever it may. And I, unfortunately, 
um, it's not it's not like that. And eventually, God will bring the right people to us where we'll get that sustainable funding and be able to run it like everybody else. But the irony in it, and I don't know why God has it structured this way, Mark. It's really funny. And But I go through the scriptures, and it seems to be this way throughout all the scriptures, is that God knows just how much he wants to give you and what he wants you to do. But in this, not business, but in this genre, there are child fine and anti-human trafficking organizations, nonprofits growing off the charts now to make everybody aware. But there are very, and they're making great money, and they're paying great salaries, but hardly none of them are going in the field and bringing kids home. Mm-hmm. And they've got a market on it, um, on that, and they've got a lot of people bamboozled. And I know it, and God knows it, and I just leave it in God's hand going, I don't understand it, God. You know, this is when a kid comes home when you go get the kid, not when you put their picture all over a milk carton and you hold weekly speeches and collect money from people just to run your organization. And so a lot of people, I'm coming full circle here, and I think you'll see where I'm going with it. Remember in the very beginning, I told you that that was the very same thing that Christ talked about, about not posturing yourself and not... Mm -hmm pretending to be something and that you're not. And the Pharisees and the Sadducees did all that. Well, even in our society today, we have a lot of organizations that have learned to make a business out of this and collect a lot of money to basically just stay in business as a business instead of putting their resources and actually going out there. Because here's our reality. A child does not come home. A missing child does not come home until you put boots on the ground out there you look for that kid, you get your hands on that kid, and you bring them home to their parents. Mm-hmm. It's when a kid comes home. Mm-hmm. And and we live in such a an interesting time and an interesting world that I can see so clearly when God talks about in the scriptures how when he says, when people will stand before him and say, but Lord, I did this in your name, and I did this, and I did this, and I did this, and he will look at them and say, depart from me. I know you not. Hmm. And I think that's where we have come in society. And people need to really check their hearts and realize and say, where am I with all of this? What am I doing with God's money? What am I doing with God's time and God's energy? Because every day I get up, Mark, I'm going to tell you something. The very breath that I have in my lungs, God owns it. Hmm. And I can do nothing without him. And I will continue to pursue the missions that he has me do because God has not given us a spirit of fear. You know, and we don't lean into our own understanding. But one thing's for sure, when we get up, we got a mission, and you know what your purpose is. You go out there and you do it. Mm-hmm. And you and God can do things that are of biblical proportions. Um, it's interesting, before I go out on an operation, I always go down to a bunch of guys that are down in Orange County. They're old surfers. <clears throat> and they're kind of like the Levites for me. And they pray for us And uh, <clears throat> before we go on every mission. And the reason that they pray for us is, is one guy named Scott Bailey, <clears throat> who I met. And I'll tell you this quick story if you've got a little bit of time. Sure. They, yeah. It adds to so much of this. <clears throat> there was a little girl named Lily Snyder that had been abducted. And she'd been missing for about two years, and our intel sources kind of told us she was kind of down in Costa Rica. But we weren't sure, so we I took a team down there, and we uh, 
we were flying down on the airplane, uh, commercial plane, and it's not like the movies where you got your own Gulfstream and everybody's looking really, you know, really sexy in their black outfits with their guns and their camels. So that's not how it's done. But sitting across the aisle from me was this ginormous, scary-looking guy, man. I mean, he must have weighed like 230, square-jawed, didn't look like he was having fun at all, kind of, you know, just short, kind of short hair, but I mean, just like, I don't want to say Neanderthal, that wasn't it. The attitude was just... He looked like a guy would bite your head off. Yeah, yeah. Man, I don't want to get near that guy. So we're flying along, and all of a sudden it starts getting a little bumpy, and I'm coming back to my seat from the bathroom, and one of my team guys is sitting in my seat, and the stewardess immediately says, Sir, you have to sit down. So I sit down, and guess where God sits me down? Right next, next to that guy. guy. <laughs> <clears throat> and... I'm just looking straight ahead, and I can feel him kind of glancing over at me. And finally, you know, I think, well, all right, I'm just going to look over. And I look over, and we make eye contact. And then, you know, it's like coming face-to-face with the dragon. <laughs> I look at him, and I go, well, how are you today? Guy cracks his big smile. And he says, I'm doing great. God is so good. He goes, my name's Scott Bailey. <laughs> End up having this conversation. Scott Bailey's going down on a mission trip somewhere in Costa Rica, right? Just somewhere in Costa Rica. <clears throat> Don't know where. We fly. Our team gets off. We get in San Jose. We're looking around. Our leads eventually take us down past uh, the coastline, down to Punta Gorda and some other places, really deep down in the jungle. And we finally end up like four days later down in this little jungle town. And lo and behold, guess who I run into? Scott Bailey. (laughs) So I'm going, wow, Lord, you know, we're kind of undercover down here. We haven't told anybody what we're doing. In fact, our cover story was we were a bunch of surfers. Yeah. So we're out there, we're looking uh, for this kid, and um, finally... Um, Has she been disappeared from the U.S.? Or? It disappeared from the U.S. She'd been okay. gone for two years. Okay. So <clears throat> my leads are pretty strong that she was, at least was down there. So I'm thinking, all right, Lord, I'm really praying about this. And God says, look... Scott Bailey's down there on a mission field. I've, I've given you a good Christian community down here that can be trusted. I want you to go to him and tell him what you're doing and ask him to help and put the word out among all the jungle folk to find out if anybody's seen this little girl. Oh. So I go to Scott Bailey and I sit down with him and I ask him if we can pray first. And he, didn't, he doesn't know I'm a believer. And then he's learning that I am. And I said, and I tell him my story. I go, uh, I do surf, but I'm not a surfer. This is what I do. I give my card. I go, we're looking for a little girl, and I just need your help. I need <clears throat> I need you to put out the word to the community to find out if anybody's seen this little girl. And uh, he agrees. Mm-hmm. And he agrees to keep it quiet. Mm-hmm. And so <clears throat> we go searching around, and, I'm just, and we're down. Now, here's how God works. We're down to like our last day of we've been there maybe 14 days. We're exhausted. 
there's no leads at all. And I go, Lord, come on. I do. I mean, I, we can't do it anymore. And right when I said that, we can't do it anymore, this girl that we had met at a restaurant, and she goes, I'd like to talk to you if I could. She goes, word on the street is you're looking for a little girl. Now, I can't tell you whether she's been here or not. And the people are like that because they don't want to, you know, they don't want to get indicted for helping criminals and stuff. Mm-hmm. She goes, but you might want to check this family at this jungle location. She goes, but, she goes, there's something I want in return. <laughs> and I went, well, what do you want in return? She said, well, do you know anybody in Hollywood? <laughs> and I went, well, why would you ask that? She goes, well, you're from Los Angeles. And I said, well, yeah, I actually do. She goes, do you know Mark Burnett that does Survivor? And I went, well, actually, yeah, Mark's a good friend of mine. She goes, well, I want to get on Survivor. <laughs> oh, my. And I went, well, I don't know if I can get you on Survivor. I said, but I'll tell you what I can do. I can put you in touch with one of the producers. How's that? And she goes, that'll be fine. So I go over to this little shack, and we put plug in money, and we're making this call back to the United States. And I get a hold of one of the producers, and I go, there's a girl down here you might be interested in, blah, blah, blah. Can you talk to her? And just maybe you guys can get her on Survivor. So they talk to her. I guess she's satisfied, and she goes, okay, here's the address you need to go to. She gives me a piece of paper, and my teammate and I, we drive down to this jungle road, and we meet up with this American kid and his wife and his two little kids in their house. And we go in, and we give them the whole thing. We give them, you know, we're looking for this little girl. We understand you guys may know something about it. They just deny the whole thing. And I just said, well, I said, would you mind if we pray, pray with you before we go? And they're just looking at me like I'm a nut. <laughs> and uh, so... I prayed with him, and I said, and then we left. And so we're pulling out, driving backwards in, in the car, and um, we get to the gate of the long road down to the jungle, and of all things, my car gets stuck. Of all things, in a little hole. And it's like, you got to be kidding me. It, get, it, just, it just gets stuck, and it, it, I'm a pretty good driver. So it gets stuck long enough for me to see somebody riding a bicycle down the road, and it's that, guy, it's that guy that we had just talked to and his wife. And he looks at me, and he says, I am so glad I caught you. He goes, God just told me that I need to tell you. Huh. And he says, I know where they are. <clears throat> and so he goes, so we draw, so all of a sudden we're not stuck anymore, believe it or not. It just comes out of the hole. It's like the weirdest thing in the world. It just, like, it just comes out of the hole. Wow. And we drive back to their house. He draws me a map. He goes, we have a little house in the jungle, and um, this is where they're staying. Um, and so um, that night, 4 o'clock in the morning, next morning, of course, we run the operation, and sure enough, they're there, and we retrieve them. Well, who are they with? Uh, she had been she had been kidnapped by her non-custodial parental non-custodial father and half brother, and he had gotten out of prison and had done a revenge kidnapping uh, against his wife. Wow! And um, she was you know she had parasites and all kinds of stuff, and 
they were, you know, they were doing drugs and a bunch of other stuff, which just wasn't a good environment for her to be in. Oh, sure. It's funny because when we raided the place, um, my good good teammate George Savannah picked her up, and we said, um, and I had the other guy down, and she's. We said your mother loves you, and she sent us here to come come get you. And Lily Snyder was five then; she was three when she was abducted. And she said, "I knew you would find me." Ah. Uh, so, and and so. Now, when you come in, did you physically have to uh, subdue? Yeah, we physically had to subdue them and tie them up. I see. Huh. Yeah, it was a regular. It was standard raid by that time. Uh huh. And uh, you know, we got to share the gospel with them. I got to pray with them. You know, we weren't we weren't there to hurt them or anything. So anyway, we took her away to the safe house, reunited her with her mom, and then we took them to Scott Bailey. And I show up with Scott Bailey and I go, Scott, these are the bad guys. We need this much time to get out of the country. I said, could you hold them for us and then turn them over to DEA once we're gone in a couple of days? And Scott said, sure. So Scott puts them in. They put them in a little house, a little cabana. They lock the door. They shower them. They feed them. And they're guarding them, of course, with a shotgun, of course. Yeah. <clears throat> and Scott's preaching to them every day. <laughs> and so... Uh, and so we come back to the States successfully. They end up in prison. They're still in prison now uh, for international parental kidnapping. Um, oh, they and, are? Yeah. And now, in, in Costa Rica or here? No, they're here in the States now. So they were extradited? Yeah, they were extradited. DEA extradited them. Okay. Thanks for listening to the God Reports podcast. Head over to GodReports.com to find more exciting stories just like this about what God is doing around the world. Thank you.